0: Hello, and welcome to Speak A Dogcast. My name is David Farb, Animal Behavior Specialist, and I am broadcasting from WOUF studios in beautiful Palm City, Florida. Thank you so much for joining me again. If you haven't clicked that subscribe or that follow button, hey, go ahead and do so right now episodes come out every single Wednesday morning, and you guys are going to want to check them out. And if you really love what you're hearing, do me a favor. Click that five-star rating. That's right. Go ahead. Stop what you're doing right now. If you haven't given me that amazing rating yet, go ahead and do that. It really helps the podcast grow. And, of course, I would greatly appreciate it, guys. So click, 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 click. Click that five-star rating. Give it a tap. Go on and do it. That's right. Now, today's episode is going to be excellent. First segment today is going to be reward and Punishment. We got to learn the concepts of both. I have an amazing story that I wanted to share with you guys today that really relates to this, and it's it's really awesome. So be sure you check that out. Then we're gonna have a segment about little dog syndrome. We're all familiar with it. We know the stereotypes that come along with little dogs. So we're gonna talk about that. Then comes the first pets, followed by our listener Q and A. If you guys have questions for the listener Q and A, dog related, training related, animal related, anything related. Send it on over my way. Questions at speakadogcast.com, or you can message me on social media as well. Now, before we get going with today's episode, got to give you that trivia question. And today's question is going to be, why are flamingos pink? Yes, why are flamingos pink? I'll give you that answer somewhere in today's podcast. So be sure you stick around, sit, stay, and enjoy the show. on Speak A Dog Cast, reward and punishment. These two concepts are the foundational building block for how every animal on this planet learns. We all learn through reward and through punishment. Doesn't really matter if you're a human being, a child, right? Adult, kid, uh, monkey, ape, tiger, fish even, believe it or not. (laughs) Yes, pig, dog, cat, every animal on this planet. Every single one we learn through the use of rewards and punishments, right? Reward and punishment, consequence, reward, Uh, treat, punishment. (laughs) I can interchange a lot of different words here. And even a treat is not always a reward, but we're not going to that. Uh, So there's a lot of different words we can use, but the simple fact remains, we use reward and rewards, right? We use reward to increase a behavior to try to get an animal to repeat that behavior again, and we use punishment to decrease behavior, right? We don't want that animal to do something again, so we're gonna punish that behavior in order to decrease it. Now we always have to start with punishment, right? Because it tends to be everybody's least favorite word, which in turn has now become one of my favorite words, uh, because it's misunderstood, right? It's not that I love punishment, it's that I love to educate people on what punishment truly means. And look, by definition, the uh, definition of punishment is very simplistic. Anything an animal works to avoid. Yes, a punishment is anything an animal works to avoid. doesn't matter what it is. If they work to avoid it, by definition, it's a punishment. Look at it this way. Uh, You know, I said I want punishment. What punishment is going to do not? I want punishment. What punishment does is it decreases behavior, right? So if the definition of punishment is anything an animal works to avoid... Uh, I could argue that when an animal works to avoid something, they're not going to want to do it again. Right? They don't look to repeat that behavior. That behavior is not getting strengthened. That behavior is getting weakened. And so, arguably put, I can I can very simply see, simplistically put, anything an animal works to avoid. oh, look at that. The animal worked to avoid it. Boom. That's a punishment by definition. You know. Of course, the simplest example I always give is. A, uh, a ticket, you know, because it, it's something any of us can understand if you're driving down the street and you don't drive the speed limit or you any kind of traffic infraction, right? You get a speeding, you get a ticket for it. You're going to get fined. And most of us work to avoid getting that fine. We don't want to pay a fine. I don't know about you guys, but I don't love paying my government more money than I need to. Uh, <laughs> right? So therefore, I'm going to work to avoid getting a ticket. So a ticket is a form of punishment to me. Hey, when you're a little kid, you don't want to get grounded. Maybe you don't want to get dessert taken away. So you work to avoid getting your dessert taken away. You work to avoid getting sent to your room. Therefore, dessert being taken away, going to your room, those are forms of punishment. Now, again, now in those examples I just gave, there was nothing really horrible about it right? Nothing, oh my gosh, so bad. Oh, you're scaring. No scariness. I mean, I mean, I'm a little scared of a ticket, right? I I see the blue lights in my rearview mirror, a little uh, stomach to the throat. You know, you're not happy about it. (laughs) I'm not scared of it though. It's not like the ticket's going to come out and hurt me, Uh, but it fits the definition. And so most people really don't like the word punishment because of the simple fact that it's just, it's misunderstood. It's misconstrued. And, you know, us as humans, we think of punishment as being this ultra harsh, ultra horrible thing, even though every day in our lives we live with punishment always around us, constantly around us, and we we accept it, we're perfectly fine with it. We accept form of punishments all around us, but for some reason when we recognize, when I bring up that, hey, that's punishment, I can see people go like, oh, I don't, I don't like punishment. It's like yeah, you do. You live by that rule every day. You're damn straight. You like punishment. Um, <laughs> not that you, like you enjoy working. You know, for something you work to avoid, but it does shape who you are. It does create balance in our lives. It does create uh, balance in society when we have an equal amount of or the right balance. Should I say not equal amount? That's not the correct way to say it. But the correct balance of punishment and reward. Now, reward. When I say reward, we're also talking about reinforcement. Okay. Now, I like to use the word reward today for a specific reason, <laughs> because what we're going to talk about is absolutely fascinating to me. This was the coolest thing. There's a human experiment going on right now in my town. <laughs> well, believe it or not, there's human experiments going on all around you. It's it's called marketing, boys and girls. <laughs> You're all the guinea pigs, <laughs> newsflash, uh, and this is this is no different. Look. At the end of the, like, when it really comes down to, it, at the end of the day, guys, we are all creatures of habit, and habitual behaviors can somewhat, if not almost always, <laughs> be predicted. <laughs> okay, if you're really good, um, and this is where psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, therapists, they can sort of predict certain behaviors based off of past patterns. So, okay, what are we, what am what am I getting into? Here we go. You ready for this? We're gonna talk about Chick fil A. on a dog podcast. We're going to talk about Chick-fil-A today. And the funny thing is, this is the second time I've actually talked about Chick-fil-A on my podcast. (laughs) I love Chick-fil-A. I'm just going to be honest. It's freaking delicious. Anybody who doesn't have a Chick-fil-A near you, I feel so bad for you. Uh, Man, they're sweet tea. They're chicken nuggets. Come on. I'm not getting paid. I just love them. All right. No, let's talk about it though. Seriously. Here's the thing. Chick-fil-A is doing a human experiment and it's not a human experiment. It's, 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 it's knowing, knowing their customers. Okay. Fascinating. So the Chick-fil-A near me just recently shut down for two weeks. Say it ain't so. It was like the hardest two weeks of everybody's life down here. No, one can't. no but really they shut down to redo their drive through a bit. Okay. And Stay with me here. Kind of a long story, but this is this is fascinating, guys, because they use psychology. They use the concepts of psychology, and man, the proof is in the puddings. You ready for this? Two lanes for the drive through Now, a lot of Chick-fil-A's have two lanes, but what they're doing now is one lane is gonna be exclusively for uh, walk-up or you know drive through customers that are placing their order at the restaurant. The other lane is going to be for order ahead, mobile orders for the restaurant. So you're not allowed to use that other line unless you get a mobile order. Now, look, I'll be honest today, they just opened, I think, yesterday, reopened. So of course they're gonna be busy. I went to Chick-fil-A today for lunch, haven't had it in, oh my gosh, two weeks. you know. <laughs> and when I pulled up, the drive through line is incredibly long. I placed a mobile order, so I had to drive around the building to my little mobile order line. And wouldn't you know it, I hop in the mobile order line, and there's nobody there. Lo and behold, I jump in front of about 20 vehicles. I'm not even kidding. And again, it's all because I mobile order. It's not like I jumped in front of them. It's So I get home, and I proceed to tell my wife about this. And she tells me this fascinating story that she had talked to the Chick-fil-A workers and asked why they were doing this. You ready for it, guys? Okay. So on their mobile app, right? You guys are familiar with mobile apps with like Starbucks and you know, all these all these different restaurants that are doing mobile apps now. And what happens when you order through their mobile app? You get rewarded. You get a free drink or a free this or a free French fry or free. And our Chick Fil A is amazing. They reward us left and right. It's awesome. You know, I even mean, really go once and boom, here's a free thing. Fantastic. But. <laughs> They want to encourage people to use their mobile app. So, what are they doing? Here's a reward. Here's a reward. Use the mobile app. Here's a reward. Use the mobile app. Here's a reward. Because obviously, it's going to speed up the efficiency of the restaurant. It's going to make things faster. uh, And it lets them serve more customers, which in turn makes them more money. Customers get through the line faster. They're happier. Restaurant makes more money and does more business. Everyone's happy. Everyone wins. But here's the fascinating thing the reward is not enough. This is why they redid their lines. Because the reward by itself is not enough to increase the number of mobile orders. So what they're hoping, what they're hoping, (laughs) there's no hope. They did their research on this. What happened to me today, guys? I got double rewarded. I had a two minute wait as opposed to having to sit behind 20 cars and all those other people got to watch me jump right ahead of them in the line. Punishment. They go, I had to wait an extra five, 10 minutes today. I'm going to mobile order next time. Look at how fast that was. What's the definition of punishment? Anything an animal works to avoid. They literally created a punishment for behavior for not mobile ordering, and people don't even know it. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff, guys mind blown, right? <laughs> My, This is the proof that punishment is a necessary part of everyday life, even something as simple as going through a drive-thru at your local Chick-fil-A. Can you believe it? Anybody out there in marketing that's listening to this is like, yeah, David, duh, this is what we do every day. <laughs> They tap into the human psyche. They look at your habits. Guys, look at Facebook and all these apps and all this crap gathering and nom, 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 eating up all our information and what our spending habits are and what we like and then the ads pop up. and They look at your habits, they look at your patterns, and they base an algorithm off of that to increase the likelihood that you're going to spend more money. Or believe it or not, they're using punishment by not letting you see things that you don't want to, that you're not buying, that you're not spending money on, that you're not looking on. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, come on. This was just, this was literally, I mean, like, like check that out guys, right? It wasn't enough to offer the reward. It wasn't enough with incentive of dangling the carrot. They needed more than that. They needed a reason to stop going through the regular drive through Okay. So I know we're talking about human psychology today, but guess what guys, what did I say at the beginning of this, of this segment, every animal on this planet works the same way we either going to be rewarded and reinforced for a behavior, and that's going to strengthen that behavior and increase the likelihood that we're going to do that behavior again. Punishment decreases behavior. It is literally the only mechanism, guys. It is the only mechanism on this planet, the only one, to get behavior to decrease dog, cat, bird, doesn't matter. Okay? So I, I just, this this really blew me away. <laughs> and it didn't because I, you know, it didn't because I understand the context of psychology. The part that blew me away is, is that how blind we are, <laughs> how blind we are as people. I mean, even myself, right? I went to that drive through line. And went, oh, look at me. I'm awesome. Came home and told my wife the story. She's like, well, duh. <laughs> look at what they're doing, Right fascinating. That just blows my mind. I love it. I love it. We are crazy creatures, aren't we? Um, <laughs> dogs work the same way though, guys. They do. I promise you. I promise you. Look, this is why I've done a segment a while ago. I did a segment about force-free training. This is why force-free training is bogus because a lot of force-free trainers believe that, well, if you know, you don't leash up the dog and you ask them to sit and if they don't sit and they walk off, then that's their prerogative and we'll try to ask them when they come back again. Whereas if I just leashed up the dog and not let them walk away and ask for a sit again, that dog's going to sit down the second or third time as opposed to having to wait 20 minutes because there's no reason. I'm not giving that dog any reason to not screw off. <laughs> Tell me to screw off and walk away. But by putting a leash on him, I, mean, I don't have to yank on him. I don't have to do anything crazy. I just have to put a boundary in place and boom. That's a form of punishment, guys. Because what does the dog get for getting up and walking away from me when it's tied to a leash? Absolutely Nothing. So it goes, well, screw this. This isn't getting me anything. But if I sit down, all of a sudden that guy just threw a treat at me. Well, hey, I want to do that again. But if I never stopped that, if I never created that option for the dog by putting a leash on him, by punishing the behavior of walking away, of ignoring me, of how you see what I'm saying here. Punishment doesn't have to be horrible. It's just a means to decrease behavior. It's just a mean. It's just anything an animal works to avoid. Okay. So. Really simplistic concepts, but they do get a little complicated. But, but you know we're not we're not we're not not even going into the complicated stuff today. So today we're just we're keeping it simple. We are K I S S. We are keeping it simple, stupid, right? Reward punishment. So, don't start thinking that just because you know you're putting a leash on a dog, that's that doesn't mean anything, right? Because your dog could choose to try to walk away, and then all of a sudden they realize they can't, and boom. That decreased the behavior of them walking away from you before you know what they sit down and then we have a behavior to reward. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Okay, so keep it simple here. We want to reward, reinforce, and strengthen any desired behaviors in order to increase the likelihood that they're going to repeat. And we want to punish in order to decrease or weaken undesired behaviors that we don't like. Don't forget one more time, punishment is only anything an animal works to avoid. Doesn't have to be harsh, but has to be something the animal works to avoid. If you keep it simple, stick to these concepts. I promise you'll have better training and better results with your dog. Are you tired of your dog barking all the time? Or maybe you want them to stop jumping on people when they come over. Or does your dog take you for a walk instead of the other way around? We can help. At The Nature of Training, we are committed to improving the relationships and lives people have with their pets. No matter what behavioral issue you are experiencing, from an unruly puppy to more severe issues, we can help. Offering a wide variety of services, such as in-home training, doggy and puppy boot camps, doggy day camps, boarding, and now offering virtual training as well. For more information, check out our website, www.thenatureoftraining.com, or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at David Paws. Located in beautiful Palm City, Florida, serving all of the Treasure Coast and North Palm Beach County. The Nature of Training, helping you achieve success with your pet. Next on Speak a Dogcast, it's Little Dog Syndrome. Yes, also known as LDS, not Latter Day Saints. No, we're talking about Little Dog Syndrome, Napoleon Complex. Everyone knows little dogs have a stigma about them, don't they? Whether it's being yappy, barky, possessive, protective, aggressive, whiny, needy, all the things that come with it. And I'm here to tell you today that all of it is a bunch of crap. <laughs> you heard me right. You heard me right. I'm so tired of people saying, well, little dogs are just yappy. No, guys, little dogs are yappy because we let them be. The whole reason little dog syndrome exists is us. Do you think little dogs know that they're tiny, little cute, little pressy, little little, little dog? No. You know what they know? They know that they're a dog. That's what they know. It's not to say they can't tell the difference between a giant dog and a tiny dog. They don't know their size. Um, But the reality is, they know they're a dog, and that's about the extent of it. Anything else, we put on them. You know, I tell my clients with little dogs, you need to pretend like this is an 85, 90-pound dog, because mentally, that is exactly what it is. It is no different. A dog is a dog is a dog is a dog is a dog. Sure, different instinctual breeds, uh, different instinctual needs come with different breeds. Um, I'll give you that To some degree. To some degree. But what are they at their core? They're a domesticated wolf, and I don't really care if it's a chihuahua all the way through, uh, you know, a mastiff. It doesn't really matter. They're all dogs, and that's how I try to treat them. I try to treat every dog like a dog, equally, you know? And the whole reason we get little dog syndrome, like I said, it's because of us. We do it to them. We give little dogs anxiety by treating them like little dogs, <laughs> as opposed to just, taking away that L word and just making it a dog, you know? So when we have this Napoleon complex about them and how how does it come about, you know, how, how does this stuff really start? And like I said, it really, it's, it's at the very beginning there's, look, (laughs) right, there's dog owners, there's cat owners, there's big dog owners, there's little dog owners, right? Look, my parents will attest to this. (laughs) Not that I'm picking on them, uh, but they're definitely more of a little dog type type. They're more little dog type people. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, We had a Shih Tzu growing up. My parents currently have a Shih Tzu. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny because I wanted a dog, I mean, as long as I can remember, and I'm the youngest of three kids, and we didn't get a dog till I was uh, what six or seven years old. I was in first grade. <laughs> you know, that was what her name. That was Ashley, and Ashley lived to be, I believe, seventeen. If I have that correctly, yeah. She she passed away when I was in college. I mean, that was crazy. So, yeah, my family definitely we we were more of a little dog family. I wanted a big dog want I was ready to get like you know anything in Newfoundland <laughs> but my parents told us that we were only gonna have a little dog and I understand I get it believe me because it's a lot it's a lot having a big dog and but I told them I said I'm gonna get a big dog like As I, can, I can' I'm getting a big dog and sure enough my first dog with my uh, wife which she was my fiance at the time um, but our first dog was Penny Lane she was our half lab half great dame one of the best damn dogs in the world. Uh, anybody out there with a Labradane? you know what I'm talking about. It's just, what a great mix. Uh, but we're not here to talk about that. So we're here to talk about the opposite end of the spectrum, the little dogs. But that's where it starts, guys, is people don't treat them like big dogs. And uh, my family, we knew we only wanted a little dog. And I'll be honest, you know, looking back, we we certain things with Ashley, the, one of the first ones, and this is what I'm going to call all you little dog owners out on, scooping them up. scooping them up in your arms anytime there's a problem or you're worried or you want to protect them or, oh, got to scoop them up. Don't get me wrong. You got a giant dog barreling down on you, not on a leash, no owner around. Sure. Pick up your dog and run. Um, (laughs) But I'm talking about every scenario. Look, I'll tell you a story. Years and years ago when this was actually the very first time I was introduced to this other behavior specialist I used to work with. Uh, What a great guy. Amazing trainer. My God. Uh, His eye for training is phenomenal. Anyway, make a long story short, it was a mutual family friend. And the mutual family friend heard I was getting into, you know, I'd been getting into dog training. And he said, hey, you got to come meet this guy. You know, he's a bit older. He's been doing this a long time. Uh, You got to come check him out. He's training my dogs and my son's dogs. Come over. We have a session and check it. So I got there a little early. Uh, before the yeah, I, I love this story. Just it, 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 uh awesome. Um, and uh, I got there a little early and I went inside and now my our family friend had a had a bulldog and his sons had uh, his son had two little dogs of some kind. I want to say they were little mixes if I remember correctly. They were they were little. Funny thing is, when you know it, they were the ones causing more of the problem. The bulldog was not helping, but. He's kind of just being a bulldog, <laughs> you know? Uh, and okay, so get into it. So trainer comes to the door, knock, knock, knock. He opens the door. I love it. Doesn't even introduce himself right to business. You know why? Because they're working the front door exercise. There's no time for pleasantries. The dog doesn't know that I haven't met him yet. That's not what it's about. Get to work. Love it. Uh, <laughs> and he did. He got to work right away. They worked through a couple things, and I'm just a bystander. You know, I'm just watching. Obviously, he knew I was coming. You know, it wasn't like a uh, just showing up. Anyway. So I'm watching them work, and they're doing their thing, and he's going through it and running through it, and it, it, it was just awesome. You know, I remember it. I was young and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and it was—I was just eating it all up. I was just taking it all in, watching this guy work, and it was—it was, it was incredible. And um, at one point, at one point, the little—I don't remember what triggered it precisely. I think it was something the little dogs did. And the bulldog sort of went lunch for the little dogs, and what's the first thing that the little dog owners do? They scoop them up in their arms, and oh, and I, and I it, this wasn't my session, but my instinct kicked in. I was sort of in the moment, you know, I'm watching it all. My instinct kicks in, and I go, "Hey, put those dogs down! Put those dogs down immediately! Put them on the floor!" Okay, we had the bulldog under control. It's not like this was a free for all. You know what I mean? I said, "Put them down," <laughs> and I stepped back and went, "Oh, <laughs> shouldn't have said that." You know, um, here I am at this other guy's session and I'm telling his clients what to do. Now, cool thing was he loved it. He, the the trainer guy, he saw that what I, that I saw, right, what was happening and that that wasn't helping the situation. It was only making it worse. Um, And so after the session, you know, that's when I finally introduced myself to him. And we went outside after the session, we went outside and out front and talked and chatted and, and he said, Hey, why'd you ask him to put those dogs down? And I said, well, because it was making it worse. He said, if anything, that's only going to make the bulldog jump up and lunge him even worse. He said, we just got to correct the, the bulldog and then correct the two little dogs on the floor. Keep it even. He said, you want to go get a beer? <laughs> I answered the correct the question correctly. Passed the first test. Um, so, yeah, we went and got a beer. We talked for like three hours and talked behavior and training. Uh, and it was history from there. It was incredible. Um Really, really cool. Good relationship, working relationship we had, and uh, uh, it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. So anyway, make a long story short, look at the little dog syndrome going on, guys. Look, it's not to say that a little dog and a big dog, it can be a potentially dangerous situation, but there's the opposite end of the spectrum. It can be a potentially phenomenal situation. I own a Chihuahua, guys. I have a Chihuahua with tons of big dogs around all the time, and it's not a problem. Okay? Are we a little safe and we try to be a little more diligent about why, sure, with new dogs that don't know them, we have to teach them and show, but that's just it. We teach them, we show them, and then it becomes okay. Because at the end of the day, they're all dogs. And if we treat them like dogs, big, little, medium, doesn't matter. If I treat them all like dogs, we can all have a good time, <laughs> you know? Look, my doggy day camp days, I don't have a big dog day. I don't have a little dog day. Yeah, sure, I try to maybe group some of the dogs together about that. But I have big dogs and little dogs on on my doggy day camp days, and they all get along just fine. You know, sure they they some hover towards uh, one dog versus the other, as we all do. We all have certain friends we cater to, you know. We all, but they all get along just fine. They're all amicable, no big deal. So when it comes to little dogs, you have to pretend that little dog is eighty five pounds because mentally, that's what they are. A dog is a dog is a dog is a dog is a dog. And if we view and treat them that way, you get a better result. So the thing is when we start treating a little dog like a little person or we start scooping them up or we start doing all these things that you wouldn't normally do, right? With like an 85 pound lab, a Labrador retriever, you're not just scooping them up out of, no, you're gonna make a collar correction. For some reason when we get a little dog, people are like afraid to make a collar correction. Guys, yeah, if you make the same correction you're gonna make on a lab that's a little chihuahua, it's gonna be a problem. But if you make an appropriate correction, if you have the appropriate collar, the appropriate leash, there's nothing wrong with that. You've got to train and you have to discipline your little dogs. My chihuahua was disciplined, man, my chihuahua, I mean, I think I've, I've, I've told you guys about her. Um, poor thing. She was a rescue, came to us with all kinds of issues. She was scared of the world. She was terrified. She'd cower. She'd pee. You couldn't crate her. Um, she was terrified of me when I first got, I mean, immediately first got her. Just didn't, all I had to do was look at her. That was it. <laughs> but she's come a long way. She's one of my best little buddies now. I love snuggling with her and she sleeps with me a lot. And you know, she's my bud or uh, become really good friends over the years <laughs> because I treat her like a big dog. I treat her like one of the pack, no different than any of my other dogs. And that's why we've gotten such a great result with her. I don't treat her like a purse accessory. I don't treat her like this little, you know, no, she's a dog, man. Might be a little chihuahua, but she's a dog. Okay. So this little dog syndrome thing is really made up. It, it really is. And it's not, it's not that it's made up. It's a real thing uh, that we usually see a lot of little dogs barking. But we kind of go into this like impression that, well, little dogs can't cause damage and they're not, you know, it's just a little bark and they're not that noisy. And I mean, we can think of the thousand other excuses that we hear, but you have to ask yourself, would you put up with this If this was an 85-pound dog, would you put up with that behavior if that was an 85-pound dog? Because I can guarantee you the answer is pretty much going to be no. (laughs) You know? Think about that, guys. Would you allow a large dog to act like that? No, I don't think you would. So little dog syndrome, it's made up. We create it. It's all what you reinforce and strengthen. It's all the behaviors uh, that you don't punish, right? As we just talked about in the first segment, reward and punishment—you uh, have to punish behaviors you don't like. You have to tell a little dog, "Hey, cut that out!" If they're barking, "Hey, stop that!" You know, redirect them, do something, uh, because just letting them bark and bark and learn and letting them be quote little dogs <laughs> only perpetuates that stereotype, doesn't it? So, little dog owners, I am looking at you. I am pointing a finger a little bit. Be more diligent. Be more diligent with your dog. Treat them like what they are. They're a dog. Dog's a dog, and the more you do that, the less little dog syndrome that you are going to have. The answer to today's trivia question, why are flamingos pink? Because of their diet. Yes, now carotenoids, that's what give carrots their orange color or turn ripe tomatoes red. These same carotenoids are found in the microscopic algae that brine shrimp eat. As a flamingo dines on the brine shrimp as well as the algae, its body metabolizes the pigments, turning its feathers pink. So I guess the old adage is true, you are what you eat. Next on Speak a Dogcast, it's the First Pets. Today on the First Pets, we will be talking about Grover Cleveland. At Cleveland, he was the only president to serve two non-consecutive terms. Yes, his first term was from 1885 to 1889 as the 22nd president, and then again as the 24th president from 1893 to 1897. Now, when Grover Cleveland first entered office, he was actually a bachelor. Yeah, during his first term, but he ended up marrying 21-year-old Francis Folsom while in office, making him the only president to marry in a White House ceremony. Cleveland and his young wife, well, they soon got busy. Yes, they had five children, and Esther the second born she carried the distinction of being the first baby born in the white house now they had lots of animals lots of pets as many of the presidents did they had foxhounds and dachshunds and three of the dachshunds were actually sent to mrs cleveland from a mr merritt Now, he was serving as the us consul in bremen germany at the time and of course if you guys have listened to the breed of the week segment in the past we of course featured the dachshunds and dachshund dachshund uh, they are a german breed and at the time they were definitely they were relatively new to the united states So pretty cool. Uh, Now, a New York Times uh, reporter wrote that the dogs had arrived at the White House after a journey of over land and sea of 4,000 miles. They had a, a few other breeds of dogs as well. They had Millie, a Fox Terrier, and Gallagher, a young Cocker Spaniel. There was also imported fish many varieties of goldfish, and the ruler of Siam sent a paradise fish to the family as well. Now, game chickens and fowl, they were kept around the stables, of course, you know, farm-type animals, and Mrs. Cleveland also had a lot of ponies. Now, she was also known for her prize-winning poodle, Hector. Yes, he was the well-known black French poodle. But the dog was actually ended up left at Buzzard's Bay for the winter as a companion to the St. Bernard, who had also won many prizes, quite a wide variety of breeds that they had. Now, dogs were plentiful at Cleveland's presidency, during his presidency, as he was an avid hunter. Now, birds, they were a little more taboo being inside the mansion, but they had a few of them, quite a few of them as well, actually. Now, uh, you know, they had canaries, they had mockingbirds, but, well, President Cleveland wasn't the biggest fan of the mockingbirds. Now, there is a story that, unlike Mr. Jefferson, again, if you've listened to previous segment on, on the First Pets, we talked about Jefferson and his love of birds, but Cleveland didn't share that. He felt that they were a bit annoying, especially the mockingbirds, and one evening, so the story goes, he was up working late, and the mockingbird's antics kept interrupting his concentration. So he had the bird moved. But then the sudden silence and the fact that the bird might have been placed in a drafty place, it worried him even more. So he still cared for the birds, right? Now, Mr. Pendle, he was an aide, and he spent most of the night moving the mockingbird from place to place, trying to find a compromise between, you know, where the bird wouldn't annoy him with its sound, but where it wouldn't catch a cold. (laughs) Yeah, kind of funny. Now, Francis, you know, uh, Mrs. Cleveland... She was always remarked as having a wonderful way with animals and was labeled as such an animal lover with an affinity for any type of animal. At one point, she had so many birds, they lost count, but of course, she could always remember the name of each and every one of them. Uh, Again, it's so cool how many pets and animals were always playing a part in the daily life of our presidents and their families. Next on Speak a Dogcast, it's our listener QA. The first question today comes from Linda from Boston, Massachusetts. Linda says, My kids want a dog, so I started listening to some dog podcasts and I love your method. Totally in line with how I want to raise a dog. My kids are 7, 10, and 13. We are an active family. We love to hike, we love to swim, boat, camp, and more. Is there a breed that you would recommend that would fit the criteria? Also, I have had a dog, but it's been a long time, but my husband has never owned a dog. Okay. <laughs> so, Linda, yeah, you know, uh, awesome that you're ready to get a dog. Fantastic. And you know what? Your kids are at a great age, too. 7, 10, 13, that's fantastic. Um, obviously, the 13-year-old is, is definitely old enough to go out and walk. Maybe your 10-year-old might be. And your 7-year-old can probably go out and maybe walk the dog with help <laughs> but your seven-year-old can start be you know teach your documents anyway point is it's great it's a, it's a that's a wonderful uh, uh, kind of an age um, range there to be able to bring a new dog into the family now I'm gonna assume you guys want to bring a puppy in because <laughs> you sounds like you want to raise a dog uh, from a young age I get that so what kind of puppy First thing I'm going to have to point out here is obviously, you know, you said it, your husband's never had a dog, so let's not get crazy. Let's not go uh, shepherd route. Let's not go, um, and, and look, honestly, it, maybe I'm biased, I'll admit it, but retrievers are just such great dogs, such great family dogs in an easy first Time dog owner dog, you know shepherds. It gets a little complicated. Huskies. People want to go for the huskies. I don't recommend that for a first dog, uh, first time dog owner. How about collies? Same thing, like border collies. Oh my gosh, what phenomenal, amazing dogs! But probably not for the first time dog owner. Really, you cannot go wrong with the retriever. Look at the same time, go down to your local rescue. You know. See if there are some puppies where they at least saw the mom or the dad. And by all means, please rescue. And look, you can get a purebred retriever. How many awesome, amazing retriever, uh, retriever specific rescues are there out there? You know, down by me, and granted, I know, Linda, you're in Boston, but down by me, we have the South Florida Golden Retriever Rescue or Golden Retriever Rescue of South Florida. I may have that backwards, <laughs> but point is they specialize in goldens, but retrievers really in general, I see a lot of retriever mixes. Um, I, just, I, I, can't, I, I always go back to the retriever because in my opinion, you can't go wrong with a good retriever. It's not to say there aren't a lot of other breeds out there that'll be great for you. Look, hella poodle's a great dog. They really are. They love the water. They're water dogs. They're active. They'll hike. They'll swim. They'll go camping with you. Sure, the coat's a little more to keep up with, and that's something you got to take into consideration. Again, Retrievers, (laughs) Retrievers, <laughs> you know, I just got to go back to it. Retriever, retriever. Just look, they want to please you. They're happy-go-lucky dogs. Obviously, you got to train and, and still structure rules boundaries. Retrievers have the potential to be horrible dogs, if you want my honest, and that's the truth, because every dog has that potential. So it's only how you raise them. But man, retrievers are just, they're easy. They're easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy. So I would recommend go out there and find yourself a retriever. Next question. This comes from Eric from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Eric says, "My dog barks a lot at the front door, and I want him to be—I want it to be more manageable, especially when people come over. Now, once the door opens, the barking continues, but it will stop after a few minutes. What can I do to make him listen better?" Uh, well, you know, Eric, this is this is a long answer, so I'm just going to tell you. Uh, I've done segments first of all on the front door and uh, one of them's even entitled The Front door. I think I've done two, two, two really big segments on how we do The Front Door. So feel free to go back and check that out. I think it's The Front Door and The Front Door 2.0. Uh, but there's a lot of good info there because, look, it starts It starts with you gotta teach your dog to focus a little bit, right? That's how we teach them to listen. Once they learn how to focus, we can teach them to sit, to stay, then they can learn to sit and stay. Then maybe we'll teach a spot command or a place command, go to your bed, you know? Uh, we combine all of these commands together to get our dog refocused away from the door, focused on you, get them in a sit and a stay position, be able to open the door and invite our guests in. So by redirecting their focus to something else like a sit, stay in a spot, uh, a lot of times that will actually bring the barking intensity down. And when you bring that barking, in, uh, barking, barking, <laughs> When you bring that barking uh, intensity down, uh, it'll make it more manageable, you know? Um, so you can start with the front door exercise. That's what I would highly recommend. And it starts with desensitizing the door a bit. You have to desensitize that doorbell, the door, things at the front door, um, and, and you're gonna have to work on that, okay? So desensitizing, working through a front door exercise. Now, you say, um, you're saying they, they, he barks a lot at the front door. He wanted to be more manageable, especially when people come over. So I'm going to guess he sees things out the front door and he barks or he hears something outside and he starts barking and it becomes unmanageable. The front door exercise is going to help that, obviously, because we're, we're desensitizing. Um, but in those moments, you are going to have to redirect the behavior. Okay, now... Kissy noise exercise, talked about it before. Uh, You know, teaching your dog that a kissy noise means to redirect their focus to you and then rewarding them for it because you might be surprised, your dog starts barking. There's nobody at the door, you know it. And you might be able to just go, hey. And all of a sudden they stop barking and want to run to you and get that food. That's how you change the pattern and make it more manageable, desensitize, bring the intensity down. But without being able to redirect that, Uh, it's gonna be a little tough. So again, you gotta teach your dog to redirect their focus. We have to work on the front door exercise uh, and we have to be able to reward once they're quiet. So if your dog does immediately quiet down, make sure you tell him good boy, of course, and give a treat, okay? Uh, That's really what it's gonna take. And when in doubt, you can leash your dog up and control him a little better utilizing that. Leash. Okay, so I know that's kind of that's a that's a big one, you know, and bringing that intensity down. You kind of have to hit it from a couple different angles to be able to really get that overall uh, behavioral change that you're looking for. That's going to wrap up the podcast today. Thank you so much for listening in. If you haven't given us that five star rating yet, go ahead and click it if you love what you're hearing. You can find me on Instagram at Speak a Dogcast. Have a wonderful week, and don't forget get out there and walk your dog.